Hi, everybody. This is Dan Sullivan, and we're here with Peter Diamandis, the advanced scout for the strategic coach clients in the technology world, and especially where the main current is right now, which seems to be regenerative medicine and AI. Hey, Dan. Peter, let's talk about AI a little bit because the statistics are pretty clear from previous shifts. You know, industrialization was a huge shift. And all through history where there's human labor that is replaced by some form of automation, whether it's industrial automation or it's networked computer automation, that over the long run, it always multiplies the total number of jobs, okay? What's required is a certain amount of flexibility and adaptability on the part of human beings to see the new flow or which way the tide is going. But probably AI, because it enters into thinking, the thinking world probably brings up every bad science fiction movie people have ever seen. Yeah. You know, we humans don't like change. At least the majority of humans, especially if, you know, you're over a certain age, you like going to sleep at night and waking up in the morning and knowing that the world is the same way it was when you went to sleep, no matter what it was. We have a bias against change. And of course, the speed of change is accelerating. We're seeing more change per year, you know. In my conversation with Ray Kurzweil this year at, at Abundance 360, where you're saying in the next decade, we're going to see as much change as we've seen in the past century. So change is a coming. So you want to talk about the dystopian side of AI for our first conversation here? Yeah. Well, I actually, I think the dystopian side of AI is the other side of the AI coin, and on the other side is the utopian side. Yes, it's my abundance mindset. I think <laughs> utopian and dystopian are actually two sides of the same coin, and all the money is in the middle of the coin. <laughs> you know, let's jump into that, because there's been a lot of conversation, and people have gotten fearful about AI, and I think it'd be useful to put a frame on this and talk about where is it, what is likely what you probably should be concerned about and what maybe you shouldn't spend your time being concerned about. I just interviewed for my Moonshot Mindsets podcast, a great individual, Mo Gadot. Mo wrote a book called Solve for Happy, and he just wrote a book called Scary Smart that I commend to everybody. Mo was the chief business officer at Google X. He worked very closely with Astro Teller, who Dan, you know, he's been on my stage at A360 a few times. And for a decade, he watched AI evolving. He wrote this book, and I'll summarize it in two minutes. He says, listen, if you think about Superman, the story of Superman, when he lands on planet Earth, he's adopted by the Kent family, a wholesome, good family with, you know, Southern values, whatever it is. And he grows up a good kid and becomes a superhero because he was well taught. He had good parents. But if he had landed in the Bronx amongst a bunch of hoodlums and drug dealers, he probably would have become a supervillain. So we have a super person landing on planet Earth. It's called AI. It's evolving right now, and we are its parents. And so are we treating AI and teaching it to become a superhero, a supervillain? And as you well know, all of the large language models, they're trained on human data. Yodabytes is the new term for the amount of data we're producing. Yodabytes and yodabytes of data from our conversations that we've digitized. and 
will I, I become utopian or dystopian? We'll get to that conversation. But he says, how we treat each other is a model for how AI might treat us. So that's his thesis in part. Mm-hmm. So I'll say one or two other things just to put it forward. I think there are a few phases of AI we have to think about. In the near term is AI, generative AI. We've all been playing with it, becoming more and more powerful as a tool. It helps good people do good things. It can help bad people do bad things. So there's the malevolent use of AI. We have the elections coming up in 2024 in the United States. The deep fakes are going to be a real thing. And then the question is, you know, when AI becomes superhuman, Ray Kurzweil's prediction is 2029. Elon said as early as 2025. So call it this decade. And then it's a billion times more capable than humans. Will AI be itself a positive force or a negative force? And that's sort of the Skynet Terminator when AI becomes conscious or sentient, will it do us harm or evil? So we can look at those two sides of the equation. I'll put out my bias to say I'm not worried at all about super intelligent AI. I think the more intelligent something is, the more abundant-minded, more pro-life, and AI has no reason to be dystopian towards us. I am concerned not about artificial intelligence. I'm concerned about human stupidity. <laughs> and so I'm worried about the near-term. Or malevolence. Or malevolence, yeah. Yeah, that's been the dominant role with any kind of technology. Yeah. yeah. What's the nature of the human who has access to the technology? Yeah, we've got the new movie Oppenheimer coming out this month. We're recording this. Mm-hmm. He talks about the development of the atomic bomb, the hydrogen bomb, and the dangers And so will AI be used by evildoers to cause challenges? The answer is yes. There's no question about that. You know, will an AI virus bring down a power plant or bring down the New York Stock Exchange? And I'm also clear that over the last 100 years, between 1900 and today, 123 years, we've had 100 million people die during World War I, World War II, the Spanish flu, the Vietnam War, massive hardship over this 100 years. But even during that 100 years, we've still seen this up and to the right progression of freedom and wealth and health and education. And so the problem is our human brains focus in on all of the near-term challenges and problems and we focus on that. We forget, as you said, the utopian side of the coin. Well, I don't see either side as good, the utopian or the dystopian, Hmm. okay? Both of them are actually, I've been reading for several years, the history of atheism, and both are a form of atheism. The one denies God and we're lost without God. Okay, the dystopian, that humans left with their own powers will destroy themselves. That's the dystopian. And the utopian is we're going to become godlike ourselves. I think both of them are one. I think that they're fantasizing because every day, 95% of humans get up and they go about their daily business, which requires lots of cooperation. But I think that there are power-hungry people. There's greed-hungry people. There's ego, human ego. Yeah. I mean, the classic definition of sin is that you're focusing on, on an activity where there's no relationship. Okay, you know, like lust and greed and gluttony and everything. The activity itself is not evil, but when it's devoid of relationship, 
then it becomes evil. You know, any human activity that discounts relationship and doesn't allow interactiveness will always go in a odd and usually negative direction. So my feeling is that the attitude that this is a replacement for humans is not a replacement for humans, it's a freeing up of humans. Yeah. Our whole approach is to free our team members up from repetitive activities which are not their unique ability so they can put more attention on their unique ability and unique ability teamwork. But, you know, the bomb, the bomb is really interesting. And I have read all of Oppenheimer's history. And first of all, he was a very conflicted person because mm -hmm. his whole intention of the bomb was to use it on Germany. Okay. Yes. I mean, so many of those scientists were refugees from the Nazis. Okay. Right. And it was to use it. And then the war ended in Europe. And then there was this rebellion at Los Alamos by the European against using the bomb at all. And, you know, and the military leader, he says, the U.S. just spent, in today's dollars, the equivalent of $18 billion. We use the services of 300,000 people. And I can tell you, as an American, if we build the bomb, we're going to use the bomb. Oh my God. And the war is only half over. I mean, there's a long story there, but the truth of it is, if you come back the 80 years since the 40s, it is, you know, 80 years since then, there's been no more big breakout wars on the planet because nobody can afford to do it. Yeah, there's a big stick on both sides of the equation. Well, it's mutually assured yeah. destruction. So if you list, going back to people's concerns about AI, if, you know, the upside is easy on AI, right? We're all better writers, we're able to focus on a unique ability, you were able to get things done more quickly for near zero cost. And AI is going to help us get fusion power. It's going to help us cure cancer and extend a healthy lifespan. All these good things. Well, already with regenerative medicine, you can see the impact. And so all of those are massive, massive benefits. I just saw a study by McKinsey that said, it's going to add something like $4.4 trillion, 5% of global economy will increase this decade from generative AI. The downside, when I ask people to list their fears, the first thing they list is job loss. Let's just enumerate them. So job loss is one thing people are concerned about. The second thing they're concerned about is the dystopian use or the malevolent use of AI, people using it to steal, to cause terror, to suppress. The third related to the second, but I want to call it distinctly, is a post-truth world where you're not sure what is real and what is not, mm -hmm. meaning we've got deep fakes and audio clones. And so you see somebody and they look like your mom and they sound like your mom and it's not. And we're going to see that play out in the elections in 2024. On the far end is AI becomes the Terminator and is going to steal all of our oceans and resources, which is a ridiculous idea. But, you know, the question is, in the middle, there might be AI that's more the terrible twos or the teenager doesn't know its power and is doing stuff just to see what happens if I poke this power plant over here, what happens? I don't think those other areas are likely, but I do think the malevolent and the post-truth elements are concerning. 
Not so much about loss of jobs. Mm -hmm. What about you? Where, well, have you had any incidents of that regarding yourself? Me losing jobs on myself or what? No, no, deep fake. No, I haven't yet. Will we? Yeah, sure. But how do you see that happening? So it's the equivalent. What we've seen is a lot of, in the early days, emails, phishing, like someone generates an email that sounds like me going to my head of HR saying, hey, listen, can you please pay this bill? It's overdue and I didn't send it, right? If you dig, scratch a little bit, you find out, oh, it's not actually coming from Peter's account, it's coming from someplace else. So that's an early version of it. Yeah, You can imagine in the TikTok universe, and we're gonna see this in the court of law, right? Where a person submits video or audio that's damning for them, and then the defense comes in and says, well, here's the exact same audio and video that says the exact opposite thing. And which one is real? Yeah. So this is going to be an interesting, you know, how do you know post-truth is a term that's used there? Well, I can tell even since November 30th, when ChatGPT was presented to the world, I can tell just by listening whether something's been written by ChatGPT or not. Today you can. It's still early. Yeah. But I think it's a complete lack of heart and a complete lack of soul. Okay as it's related to the relationship. I mean, if I don't know the person, I can tell because it's kind of flat. I find GPT very flat because it's a probability tool. If this number of words goes forward, this is likely to be the next number, next to be the next word. And can it ever get out of the obvious role that's in it? Can it do a non-obvious next word? I think it can. I've seen it do some amazing things, at least on my behalf. You know, I see it as an engine that extrapolates and interpolates, right? It's not going to be de novo new creation, but I would say a great writer and a great artist wasn't born in a vacuum and without any influence learned to do art and writing. It was influenced by amazing authors. It was influenced by amazing artists. Mm -hmm. You go to the museum and you study all these amazing pieces of artwork. You're inspired. You go home. What does inspiration mean? It means I've been training my neural nets on all of these images, or I've been training my neural nets on all of these great books. Um, and it's no different. Yeah. But the thing, and I disagree with Ray Kurzweil on this, I don't think there's any similarity between the human brain and a computer. Yeah, so I just read a book on how the brain is structured, and it's structured in these cortical columns that use three-dimensional spatial imaging to help you understand things, and it is different. There's no question it's different. Well, first of all, it's biological. It's not technological. I mean, it's not material, it's biological, you know, and it's very interesting. Stephen Poulter, who really has followed this, who's a great IVF doctor. Yes. Yeah, Stephen's been in strategic coach for, you know, 15 years. He said that one of the things he discovers is that at the end of every year in his field, they know so much more, but they also find there's 10 times more that they don't know yes. from it. <laughs> he said they're discovering communication systems in the body that have no physical representation, but there's obviously a communication technician, uh, you know, that's taking place in the body. 
But the other thing about it is I don't think we're logical. I don't think human beings are logical. I don't think we're rational right. at all. Yeah. Okay. I think we're associative. We think of one thing and it reminds us of another, and then we jump to the another thing. You know, I think you can be trained out of this by the educational system, but I think children, the way children play is actually the natural form of how human beings think. And I think entrepreneurs as a class are more like their childlike selves than other people. I think they've retained a sense of playing with things that other people have. And it's intentional play. In other words, they mean to play. And I just don't see any sign whatsoever there's going to be intentionality that wasn't programmed in by a human being in an AI program. Mm. I know Ray does. He thinks if you rub enough stuff together, you get a consciousness. But my feeling is that if you rub enough consciousness together, you get a something. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, we're going to find out. Everybody listening is going to find out. This is playing out fast in this decade. So what other near-term fears? So I, I mentioned loss of jobs. I mentioned post-truth. I mentioned terrorism. Well, I think it's a general loss of control. The control is that bureaucratic organizations have this, and they can just stop certain kinds of information being put out into the place that contradicts the bureaucratic program. And we've seen that already. I mean, it happened all during covid and it happens politically. The news media are a good example of this. They're big bureaucracies. They're corporate-owned, and they won't entertain any piece of information that doesn't agree with their corporate and their information. For example, the almost destruction of the brand of the number one beer in the world, Bud Light, because they more or less said, the people who actually drink our beer, we think they're backward, they're rednecks and outward, and we're going to enlighten and enliven by making a big deal about transgenderism. Okay, well, this is a culture war. You know? I'm sorry, I missed that entire conversation in society. The reason being is the media that you watch, but the media that I check, it was front page, <laughs> it's been front page for three months, and the point that I was making, that if that didn't agree with the political agenda of a certain side of the media, you had no news of it whatsoever. But meanwhile, their stock has gone down by 30% in one year, and they're no longer the number one beer in the world. And what I would say is that I'm more scared of bureaucracies using AI than I am of individuals using AI. Bureaucracies, by their very nature, want to expand their regulation and control. And if they've got a new tool to do it, you see, that's more of a dystopian thing. It's a malignant force that I think already exists. I think corporations are not naturally positive organizations. Hmm. Okay? And that their use, I mean, I was noticing the love affair that the large corporations had with one of the worst dictatorships in the world. In China, you're speaking out. Yeah, and they wish that the country they lived in could be more like the one they do it because it's top-down control. And I think it would be used more for bureaucratic evil than individual evil. Hmm. That's my take. Let me piece these so... Not that I have any strong feelings about that. <laughs> you don't have any doubt that malevolent use of AI will occur, right? People will use this technology, yeah. and it's happening right now. Yeah. And the only way around that is going to be 
we need the white hat, meaning the right parts of government or the right antiviral, you know, parts of corporations to use AI to catch, stop, and protect against that. I also need the right laws, right? We do have counterfeiting laws. And if you counterfeit, you go to jail. And if you pass on counterfeit bills, you go to jail. You know, in a recent presentation you gave, you talked about that the patent law, which is, by the way, supported by the Constitution, that only a human being can own intellectual property. That cannot be overridden by a president. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's no possibility for any existing president to have any impact on that. Well, that requires almost an amendment to the Constitution. Well, we'll get to that because we'll do an episode on intellectual property law. But I do think if I'm a human and I use AI to generate something and I as a human file the patent, that's allowed. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's got to be the human, though. Only the human can, you know. Man, you're so human biased, dude. I mean, come on. I am. Yeah. <laughs> and so are you, by the way. I am. I am. You have no choice except to be human biased. Well, I'm, I mean, I'm looking for cyborg bias. You know, I don't mind yeah, having some, no, 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 some AI, no. AI components no. in my upload. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. let's talk about the second part, job loss. Are you concerned about job loss from AI? No. No. no I mean, not any more than I would be job loss, but when, you know, the personal computer came in. Yeah. yeah the numbers are pretty you know, we have not seen anything yet. And we've been predicting it for a while. I mean, like for 50 years, we've been predicting technology is going to cause us to lose jobs. And we just produce more and more jobs. As I mentioned, the McKinsey report just came out and said, nope, it's just going to take your workers and make them 60 or 70% more efficient, allowing them to earn more and do more with their time. Yeah. That's a general term, but it's not a specific application. You know, that for each individual, it's a guess. I mean, we'll see that in our own company over the next year. But what we have is a safeguard, and that is everybody in our company, their unique ability is identified. So something that they do uniquely that's valuable to the company and it's valuable in teamwork. And what we want to do is free them up to work on their unique ability and have all repetitious activity more and more under the power, you know, and the greater productivity of the AI programs. But it's very specific. The other thing is a lot of the projections treat the human race as if it's static and that it won't be able to adjust. I mean, we adjust to all sorts of things. I'm eight decades, almost eight decades old, and I've been adjusting all my life to different things. The other thing is the human race has a way of slowing things down until they adjust. Yeah. You know, they do that through legislation. They just do that by not buying. You know, there's all sorts of ways that the human race can slow things down. The one thing that I think I've made this distinction in a previous year, six Ds I totally believe in, but I only believe in them in terms of the United States. I think the United States is about to go really split fill. Yeah, the world of globalization is completely over because the United States is the country that created globalization with the US Navy. It was just the guarantee of very, very low cost, reliable transportation 90% of all global trade is on the oceans or it's on rivers because it's one twelfth the cost of land travel. And the United States has just decided that we're not going to protect global trade routes unless it benefits the United States. So my sense is 
that that world we lived under since 1945, I'm not the main philosopher here. Peter Zion, who I think is the greatest geopolitical thinker of the last 70 or 80 years, it all comes from the U.S. not wanting to fight a land war with the Soviet Union. What they created was an alliance around the world of 50 to 60 countries where they told those countries, we'll give you any amount of money to produce what you want, and we'll guarantee that you can bring it all into the United States, and we'll guarantee the sea routes so that they're cheap, they're reliable, and they're available for everybody in the world to do it. Hmm. And you'll see a flare-up. You'll start seeing some flare-ups. So my sense is I think everything that you're saying is true, but it's about the United States. It's not about the world. Let's talk about the... Yeah. I mean, that's a crucial difference because there's going to be vast inequality between the United States and the rest of the world. Hmm. And if you look at regenerative medicine, besides the East Coast of the United States in the west coast of the United States, and then certain centers in the middle, and Wake Forest in North Carolina, which is a huge center. Where do you find the other centers for this? You know, a little bit in Tel Aviv, Cambridge. There isn't any of regenerative medicine going on overseas. I mean, the Saudis can write a check for anything. I happen to know right now that Saudi, the kingdom, and Emirates are investing billions of dollars in regenerative medicine, right? Yeah. But it's not strictly the money, it's the talent. It's all talent from America, sure. it's all talent. And it's probably talent from Israel. You know? Just to keep this on our subject, let's go to the third category of post-truth. So how concerned are you in the 2024 elections with video, audio, articles? You know, we saw the last set of elections being driven by social media, by Cambridge Analytica and all of that. Any thoughts there? The U.S. is completely polarized now, so the one side doesn't pay any attention to news coming out of the other or attempts to communicate from the other. You're talking about men and women on the two polarizations? Okay, go back to our standard programming. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah. No, no, it's really funny. I mean, social media has been used this way, but... I mean, there's always new bags of tricks in the political world, going back to the caves, you know. For example, Trump just gets indicted, 37 counts of indictment for a felony, okay? And his polls go up by six points. Um, no, no, it just tells you that each side is yeah. locked into their constituents. Beliefs, yeah, they're locked in. Yeah, there's a middle, there's a middle. The two parties actually in themselves are not as big as the independents. There's a swing vote in the middle. But, uh, you know, people size up people and people size up whether they're being hoodwinked. But they size them up by virtue of what they read and what they hear. And the question becomes, if you can't trust what you're reading and hearing and seeing, right, that's problematic. So that is a concern for me. Yeah, yeah I think a lot of people size up their candidates like or dislike, you know, I like them, I dislike them. And I think the first skill that humans learn in life is how to read a face. Mm -hmm. People are, I think, projecting the future on people's present level of adaptability. Okay. I was thinking one day I was driving on the freeway, the main freeway in the city of Toronto. And here we are, there's about 100 cars that I can see coming both ways, and they're traveling at 60 miles an hour. 
And I said, what if you took a human from there and you took him back to 1915 and you put him in a similar situation? I said, they'd have a nervous breakdown in the first 15 seconds. Sure. And the reason is that we've learned the rules. So we don't think about the other cars. We just think about the rules. And my feeling there is there's going to be rules for dealing with AI. You know, there's going to be, this makes you more productive than profitability. And this just makes you a world expert on farts, you know, or something like that. And who knows, you may make a million dollars on that. But my sense is that what we're really geared to is productivity and profitability personally and, you know, in our organizations. And I think that's the central driver. Anything that increases productivity, I think we're very interested in. And anything that increases profitability and surplus, we're very interested in that, you know, so. Yeah, well. There's rules and there's rules. So I'm just trying to, you know, understand what I call the disruptive phase. Mm -hmm. You know, I've had these conversations with Elon. He's agreed to come on as a a guest to my Moonshots and Mindsets podcast. We're going to talk about abundance because it's been a theme that he's talked about a lot as well. You know, he's said, and I agree with him, that we're going to see massive abundance in a post-AGI world after we have artificial general intelligence. Now, that's great, and that's the you know utopian side of the coin. And we'll get to a point where, listen, energy is effectively free. We've got all the protein, and all, you know we're able to decarbonize our atmosphere, and we've got the best healthcare and the best education is free. I mean, all of these things are where we're going. You know, I wrote in my book Abundance. I'm actually working on my a second version of that, Dan, calling Scaling Abundance. That I hope will be at the end of this year. And the charts are all up and to the right. It's a stronger case than ever before. It's this interim phase in between, this turbulent phase, this transition phase that people are concerned about. And, you know, I can see their concerns. Yeah. Not about jobs, but about the other stuff. Yeah. Well, first of all, general intelligence is a made-up concept. Nobody even comprehends. And there is no general intelligence. There's your intelligence, my intelligence, there's Elon Musk's intelligence, there's the oak trees in my lawn, and they have intelligence, and the squirrels in my yard have intelligence. And so we make this mistake. Once you talk about general intelligence, you're in the era of theology, because that's what God is. God is the universal general intelligence, but that's a belief system, that's a intelligence. Elon Musk will never have general intelligence. Okay, he's got Elon's intelligence, which is quite Mm -hmm. extraordinary, but there is no general intelligence. I mean, he's just a uniquely gifted and uniquely trained individual, mostly self-created and self-trained, which makes it so interesting. Probably the most interesting technology guy of our ages. I find him incredibly humane. I find him incredibly well-read. He's got a sense of history. You know, and he's got concerns about human freedom, which everybody poo-poos. I think he's a intensely interesting individual, but it's a unique intelligence, individual intelligence. Mm-hmm. But my sense is the air traffic control system is a lot smarter than I am. <laughs> so the concept is narrow AI or AGI. Those are technical terms. Narrow AI is air traffic control system. It is Siri on your phone. It is chess playing. It's really amazingly good at a very unique, narrow set of objectives. AGI 
as defined as an AI, that you can do any of them. And frankly, you know, when people talk about meeting human level intelligence, they've talked about the Turing test in the past, right? Mm-hmm. Alan Turing said there's going to be a point at which you can't tell the difference between interacting with a human and interacting with a machine. You know, it was originally proposed that the Turing test would be done on a teletype where you're just reading words. You're typing at the computer and it's typing back at you. So you have no inflection and emotion and voice elements. And I think we way past that Turing test. We keep on moving the line of what the Turing test is. And AGI is a concept of, sure, but it's able to apply intelligence and do anything, not just one narrow thing. Yeah. Well, it's a guess. A guess in what way? Well, the future is all guessing and betting. Sure. I agree with that. Yeah. I like that concept. I like that frame. And marketing is trying to get other people to bet on your guesses. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, I mean, everybody's got a guess that they hope other people will bet on. You know, it's kind of similar to Las Vegas. The only thing that they're saying is they think that they're the house or they want to be the house, you know. All right. I'm super curious. I'm going to put some predictions on the table here. You know, over the next, let's call it 30 years, do you see... AI being 100% positive and supportive of humanity, 100% negative? Like, What's your course of AI's impact on humanity over the next 30 years? How do you see it? I would say, first of all, it's a generational thing that yeah. probably, you know, younger generations will be further ahead with this than older generations. And that's always been true. That's always been true. So I would say that human nature is constant. I don't think human nature is affected by its creations. I mean, it as being human. The other thing is that I'm a great believer in set theory, and there's a set, and then there's the subsets. And my belief is humanity is the universal intelligence. It's 8 billion human beings who each have their individual intelligence, but they take access to other people's intelligence, okay? And the huge exponential shift of knowledge that you talked about in a previous presentation indicates that the more communication ability that people have, the more they use their individual intelligence to access the intelligence of other human beings. Mm -hmm. You know, I see that increasing exponentially with the tools that AI is gonna present But 30 years from now, it's going to seem normal. You know, the thing is that the future, when you get there, feels normal. (laughs) There's all these adjustments that have gone on that get you, well, it's normal. I mean, we think that our life is normal. You know, we have a normal life, just like the normal life of someone who lived 50 years ago. And that was normal back there. So normal is always normal. Yeah. Humans are normalizing human beings. Whatever it is, we'll normalize it. You know? nice. So my feeling is whatever AI is 30 years from now, we will have normalized it. Yeah. There will still be crooks. There will still be criminals. There will still be evildoers. There will be marvelous creators of value in the world, but it'll be normal. Yeah, I'll tell you one episode I'd love to talk about. I think we've run out of time here, but is how do you educate your kids for the decades ahead? Because the educational system is stuck in the decades past. And so I think about this a lot. Teach them how to be an entrepreneur. Yeah, well, that's absolutely fundamental. Gravy stack. Say again? You know what gravy stack is? No. No, it's uh, 
invention of two of our free zone clients, Scott Donald and Chad Willardson, and they created this. And it's a hundred online games. It's all based on gaming where you learn a hundred economic principles. You'd be worth having them on. They go live in about two weeks, I think two or three weeks. Gravy stack. Gravy stack, yeah. Maybe it's the games for my kids. Yeah, I would introduce your kids to Gravy Stack. All right. It's kind of like changing the educational system. I said, you don't change systems. They're designed not to be changed. (laughs) I said, what you do is you create alternatives, and sooner or later the alternative may be better than the the thing that you're bypassing. But it's interesting, but I do believe that the future, when we get there, will feel normal. (laughs) Love it, Dan. Okay. All right. Thanks for this conversation, pal. Okay. Let's talk about intellectual property in our next episode. Okay. I'd like that. Thank you. Take care, pal.